Thanks for joining us for this message from Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Shades Valley and its ministries, you can visit us at shadesvalley.org. therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is the word of the Lord. It's so good to be with you all. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we start so that he might do something in the midst of all the weirdness this morning, right? Gracious Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would come, that you would pour out your spirit now. We need you to move. We need you to work. Take my words and use them to show us Jesus in all of his glory, for we desperately need him. We need him more than anything in this world. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And amen. C.S. Lewis wrote in Surprised by Joy about how easy it was for him to become an atheist because as a child, uh, prayer was such a burden. For those of you that don't know, Lewis was an atheist earlier in his life. He became a Christian. <laughs> it was like, maybe some people don't know that. And they're like, wait, C.S. Lewis was an atheist? What? You know, No, C.S. Lewis was an atheist earlier in life, became a Christian Listen to what he said about his experience with prayer. Maybe you can relate to it when he was a child. He felt as though um, God was telling him when he would pray that uh, his prayers were never good enough. He never prayed well enough. And so he kept praying, but he never had any assurance that the next prayer would be any better than the last. A place of Misery, right? Uh, And so what Lewis describes is that miserable place of uncertainty with God. Uh, That place where you constantly question, Lord, where do I stand with you? Are you pleased with me? Are we okay? Have you left me? It's this place of doubt, and even doubting, what? Salvation. Lord, am I even a Christian at all? Do you care for me 
it all? Have I just deceived myself? Right? So it's complicated because doubts can arise for a variety of reasons. Doubts can arise because of a kind of defiant disobedience. I experienced this as a teenager when I was rebelling from the Lord. There, I had a season filled with immense doubt about my salvation, and part of that was certainly due to the fact that I had no desire to follow him at that time. So doubts can arise from that. It can also arise from hidden sin, right? Something in our life that we would never tell anybody else because then what would they think? And so in turn, we end up being dishonest with ourselves and we end up being dishonest with God, right? Um, But it can also come from other things. It can come from misperceptions about God. It can come from suffering. It can come from physical exhaustion. It can come from grief. It can come from childhood trauma. Certainly seen that. It can come from church trauma. It can come from mental health issues. It can also come from spiritual attack. Just to name a few. That miserable place of doubt, that miserable place of constantly questioning our relationship and our stance with God. So what I want to do this morning with the time that I have is um, I want to walk through what can we do when we find ourselves in this place. Because I imagine that for all of us, we experience this to some extent, or we might have a season where we're experiencing it. What do we do? Uh, What can we do when we're in this place to find gospel hope and to find gospel assurance? Um, And to do that, I want to take the lead from two historic Christian documents. First, the Canons of Dort, and then the Westminster Confession of Faith, both written in the 1600s. And why I want to use those is because I think that they reveal what the Scriptures say for how we can cultivate assurance. Essentially, both of those documents give the same answer to this question— How can you, as a Christian, have assurance? How can you find assurance in your salvation? In God, what can you do? So that's kind of where we're going today. I want to walk through these three. I want to show how I believe they reveal what the scriptures teach about this. And my hope is that we can find assurance this morning. Okay, so first... How can we find assurance? First, for my note takers, assurance comes from faith in the promises of God. Assurance comes from faith in the promises of God. First, faith. Maybe you haven't thought about this before, but assurance is bound up in faith itself, in the very nature of faith. Think Hebrews 11 with me. Verse 1. Now faith is what? The assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Faith is what? It's the assurance 
So the very nature of faith, the very nature of trust in the gospel sort of implies confidence, right? Assurance comes from trusting in God, having faith in him, right? The assurance that comes from that is part of experiencing what it's like to trust in someone who's trustworthy. Assurance comes from trusting in the trustworthy God. Biblical faith has assurance. Why? Because of its object. We'll have more on this later. But it's very important for us to start from this place. Where do we locate our faith? Where is our confidence found? Is it found in faith itself? Or is it found in the object of our faith? I think it can be helpful here to distinguish between presumption and assurance. Um, presumption, when we presume, presumption says I'm good enough. Assurance says that Christ is good enough. Presumption trusts in our own ability. Assurance trusts in Christ's power. Trusting in the promises of God. Faith that is confident because of its object. I have good news for you this morning, and it is this reality. God does not lie. He does not lie. Paul in Titus 1, um, he speaks of a hope of eternal life which God, who what? Never lies, promised us. Huh. Malachi 3.6. I, the Lord, what? Do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you will not be consumed. Huh. See, you and I, and I just love that we can kind of acknowledge this together. Right? We're fickle. We can be all over the place, up and down. We make promises, and then we don't come through with them. We tell God that we're going to do something, and then we don't. We say we're going to change something, and then it doesn't happen. We commit to a new routine, and it doesn't, right? And, and in our emotions, we can be all over the place, right? As a pastor, I have this experience where I will be driving down the road, and I will randomly think, what if it's all a lie? <laughs> what if it just... Pops, it's like an intrusive thought that just comes into my head. What if it's not true? And I have an existential crisis, right? And then I go on with my day, right? These, these things just happen, right? I'm, I'm sure it happens to you. Or I'll have these moments, and maybe the, these will go on for a little longer. I'll ask, is it really worth following Jesus? Is it really worth giving my entire life to him? Is it worth it? And I'll sit there for a while. But I've got good news this morning. God doesn't do that. God does not change his mind. God does not doubt. God has not wavered once in his commitment towards you, in his faithfulness towards you, or in his love towards 
you and he has never regretted it. There has not been something that you have done that caused him to say, maybe saving that person and adopting them and bringing them into my family was a bad idea. He does not change and he does not lie in his promises so we can trust him. So in Romans 8.1, when God promises that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, you can trust him. In Romans 5.1, when God promises that since you have been justified by faith, you have peace with God, let me tell you something this morning. You can trust him. When God says in 1 Peter 2 that by his wounds you have been healed, you can trust him. When Jesus promises in John 5 that whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, let me tell you something this morning. You can trust him. When God says in Ephesians 2, 5 through 6, that by grace you have been saved and you've been raised up and you've been seated in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, you can trust him. When God said he's forgiven you, you can trust him. When God said that he's going to preserve you, you can trust him. When God said he doesn't lie and he doesn't change, let me tell you something this morning. You can trust him. Why? Because of your perfect obedience? Why? Because of your affections that never waver or change? Why? Because of your faithfulness? No. Because of who he is. Does anybody have some confidence this morning in Jesus Christ? Is anybody's assurance starting to grow as we look upon him? This is why we must gather together. I desperately need to come and sit under the teaching of Jonathan so I can hear the promises of God. I need to participate in the confession and I need to hear the assurance as John Mark speaks it every Sunday so I can hear the promises of God. I need to come to the table so I can see and I can taste and I can touch the promises of God. I need to go for prayer. I need to pour out my heart before Jeff and Park so they can speak over me the promises of God. I need to listen when the scripture is read so I can hear the promises of God. Right? This is where assurance comes, and this is why we must gather together because we desperately need to hear them again and again and again and again. And as we do, our assurance starts to grow. Faith starts to grow. Faith comes from assurance in the promises of God. Okay, number two. Number two. Where else can we find assurance this morning? Assurance comes, number two, from the testimony of the Holy Spirit testifying to our spirit that we are children of God. Let me say that again. Assurance comes from the testimony, the Holy Spirit, testifying to our spirit that we're children of God. Um, this is straight up Romans 8.16. The spirit himself bears witness with what? With our spirit, that we are children of God. Spirit bears with our spirit that we are children of God. Listen to what J.I. Packer said. J.I. Packer, one of the most influential evangelical theologians ever, 
right? He said, The testimony of the Spirit is a direct and immediate sense of God's fatherly love. It's given as a kind of immediate communication, like God is saying, I love you, directly and immediately to the soul through his word. I love that. Directly and immediately to the soul through his word, God is saying to you individually, I love you. Um, I have good news this morning, and that is that you can have assurance and you can know that God loves you, not just because I say it, not just because your small group leader says it, right? or you see someone post about it on social media. You can have assurance not simply because you understand cognitively the doctrine of God's faithfulness. No, you can have assurance because you've tasted it. Because you have experienced the love of God poured out upon you in your spirit, in your soul, deep down in your bones. Jonathan Edwards, uh, who wrote about his own experience with the love of God, said this, and I think it's so right. He said that there's a difference between a kind of rational judgment uh, that honey is sweet. There's a difference between that and having a sense, having a taste of a sweetness, right? I have known, I hate to say this, but I have known many people in my life who have a rational understanding of the gospel, but who have never experienced the fatherly love of God, so that when I look to them and I ask them, do you know that Jesus loves you? There is a hesitation. Do you know that God delights in you? There is a hesitation. Because there is a cognitive understanding of the tenets and the principles of the gospel, and they could answer correctly on a sheet of paper what is the gospel, but they have never experienced the love of God. Right? There is a difference between a rational judgment, knowing that God loves you, and experiencing his love. The scriptures and church history speaks to this. Uh, in 1689, there was a man that had an extraordinary experience of the love of God. It lasted for about two hours. Uh, he took notes on what happened, and then he sewed them uh, to the inside of his coat where they found the note after his death. And he writes, he wrote this. From about half past ten at night to about half after midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and the scholars. A feeling of security, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ. Joy, joy, joy. Tears of joy. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, may I never be separated from Oh, that sounds like someone that's just kind of caught up in their emotions, right? That man was the scientist and mathematician Blaise Pascal. Uh, May 24th, 1738, there was a man that was reading Martin Luther's preface to Romans. 
And here's a description of what happened to him. About a quarter past nine, while Luther was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Some of you might know who it is just from that reference. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ alone for salvation. And what an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. After that experience, that man's ministry was transformed. That man was John Wesley. In 2022, there was a man attending a counseling session, and as he processed the darkest moments of his life, he suddenly felt the presence of the Holy Spirit and the love and the delight of Jesus Christ. He spent the rest of the session not talking about himself, but talking about how good Jesus was, praising him and even shouting it. Since that time, that man has been able to receive the love and the kindness and the delight of the Lord, of the Lord in a way that he never has before. That man is me. We could spend the rest of the day, couldn't we, talking about moments where the Spirit has borne witness with our spirit that we are children of God. When that happens, it goes from the head down to the heart. It goes deep in the bones so that you know, you know with security and confidence that God loves you. This is the kind of assurance that God gives, right? Um, now, let me give some qualifications because I imagine some people might be getting a little nervous now, right? Um, these experiences can have different intensities. I think in some sense we can even experience this every Sunday in a much, much, much lesser degree, right? These grander experiences are not the norm, right? They're moments in life. Second, every experience submits itself to Scripture, and we always must be mindful with any spiritual experience that we have, that we go back to the scriptures. Also, these subjective experiences are secondary and grounded upon the promises in God's word and the objective, and hear this, the objective work of Jesus Christ on the cross. All right? Um, but my prayer for you this morning is that if you lack assurance and if you find yourself in that place of doubt that you would experience God's love for you. That you would feel it. That you would know it. My prayer is simply 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. That's my prayer. So what do you do if you are struggling with assurance, right? It feels like... Uh, Brad, these are things that you say God does. It just kind of happens to us. So what are we supposed to do? Well, um, in my book, I've written three steps of how to have these spiritual experiences. You can buy them out in the foyer. Um, they're on sale today, right? Um, no, that's not true. My book's not done yet. Um, this is why you can be a little nervous about this kind of stuff, right? People start packaging and say, well, you need to go here. You need to do this thing. It's because you haven't done X, Y, and Z. Yeah, that stuff makes me nervous too, right? So what do we do? All the experience that I listed 
And even the experience in my own life and the experiences that I've had have been through ordinary means. Showing up on Sunday morning, praying together with other Christians, uh, being alone and reading the scriptures, right? Reading the work of another Christian. And what happens in the midst of these ordinary things, taking communion, God just shows up. And so that is why, what do I do, Brad? Continue to set yourself in front of ordinary means and pray for God to move. Pray for God to reveal himself to you. Pray for that. Go to Jeff and Park. Have them lay hands on you and say, I'm, I'm lacking in assurance. Would you pray? And then come back and then do it the next week. All right? Seek the Lord. Seek his face through ordinary means. This is why we need the church if we're to have assurance. Okay, my last point. Are you still with me this morning? Good, I was getting a little insecure there. Uh, Okay, last. Assurance comes, last one, from a serious and holy pursuit of a clear conscience and of good works. Let me say that again. Assurance comes from a serious and holy pursuit of a clear conscience and good works. What is this saying? It's saying what the scriptures are clear on. The scriptures are clear that the fruit and the evidence of saving faith is good works that glorify God. It is, it's all over the scriptures. You, you really can't get around it. And so if that's true... The good works that glorify God are the result of justifying faith, then our lives can function as a form of assurance. I mean, 1 John 2.3, it points to the fact that obedience of the commandments is testimony that one belongs to God. 1 John 3.14 says that it's the love for the saints that's evidence that a person has passed from death to life. Romans 8, 17 that I read earlier says that we are heirs, or excuse me, I read 16, this is 17, says we're children, we're heirs, we're fellow heirs with Christ, what? Provided that we do what? We suffer with him, that we may be glorified. Now, you might be thinking this, Brad, this doesn't sound like good news at all. This sounds like bad news. You're getting me to look at my works. This is just going to turn me back to myself and my fickleness and my disobedience. And that's the last thing that will give me assurance. And you know what I want to say? That's a great point. Thank you so much for bringing that up this morning. I love that we're going back and forth like this. Yes, I hear you. Let me say three things. First, good works are never the ground of our salvation. I hope you know that, that we preach that here at Shades. But they are the spirit-brought fruit. Justification, sanctification can never be separated. If we're going to have a full picture of salvation, we must know that God does both. He He justifies us and he sanctifies us. This goes together, and this is not something that God sends us out on our own and says, go out there and be somebody. It's rather what the spirit does within us so God gets the glory for our justification, and God gets the glory for our sanctification. Right? Works are the fruit. 
They're, they speak to a holistic vision of Christian salvation. Second, the, Christ, the scriptures, excuse me, call us to examine ourselves. Okay? And once again, we can't get around this, but I don't think we should get around it because a proper self-examination can be a really good thing. Right? Um, it can reveal to us sin. Right? It can reveal to us desires that we have. It can reveal to us hurts. It can reveal to us anger. Right? All of that is affecting us in some sort of way. But self-examination can also be a place of assurance because if we are saved, if we have put our faith sincerely in Jesus Christ, then the Spirit is working and moving and transforming us. That's what the Scriptures say. Right? And so let me make a pastoral note here. If you, because I can see this coming up, if you cannot examine your own life without going to a place of depression, without going to a place of despair, without going to a place of hopelessness, without going to a place where God is angry and he hates you and you think you're not a Christian, if every time you do that, if every time you look at your life, if every time you go inside that happens, speak with a pastor. Speak with a Christian counselor. Talk with someone, okay? Because the fact that that's happening reveals something. No time. Wish I could say more about it. Third, right? Um, how do we look at our life in a way that brings assurance? Well, first, we have to take a note from Robert Murray McShane, who said this. We should take ten looks at Christ for every look we take at ourselves. That's a good word, right? Ten looks at Christ for every look we take at ourselves. I love that. Um, but second, this is why we need the church. For each of these I've talked about, why we need the church to have assurance. This is why we need the church, because we need other people to call out what God is doing in our life. I have had countless conversations with people where people sit down and they say that God's not doing anything, that there's no evidence of fruit of their life. And I say, I see evidence as your pastor, right? I, that happens all the time in our prayer ministry, right? When we gather around other Christians, other Christians can see because so often we are so bad at looking at ourselves, right? But when we gather with others, they can call out things. I see this in you. I see the fruit of the Spirit here. I see faith, right? There's recently a situation where someone was talking about the lack of assurance that they had in their salvation. And you know how the other person responded? They laughed, now, you might say, well, wait, that's not a great response. It feels like it's kind of taking it lightly. But it was encouraging because the other person said, wait, you're doubting that's you're a Christian? It's funny to me in the sense that I see the Spirit's work all over your life. And I could say that about so many of you. We need the church so others can call out our good works and we can be assured of our salvation. Let me close with this. Last word about assurance. The biblical scholar D.A. Carson, when speaking one time at an event, gave 
this fictitious account of two Jews who are enslaved, or excuse me, who are slaves in Egypt under the rule of Pharaoh, right? Think Moses' time. And they're having a conversation about the first Passover. And the first Jew says that, of course, he listened to Moses and he has put the blood of the lamb over his door, but, but he's nervous. <laughs> he's freaking out a little bit, right? Uh, the plagues, they've been kind of crazy. It's, it's uh, been kind of a wild time, right? Uh, he's nervous. He lacks full assurance. Then the second Jew in the conversation just states, I'm not worried at all. I trust in the promises of God. So Carson asks, when the angel of death comes, which man's firstborn son is spared? Which man's son is spared? The answer is obvious and clear. Both. Both. Because death passes over, not because of the intensity of one's faith, but because of the blood of the Lamb. Death passes over not because of the strength of one's faith, but because of the blood of the Lamb. So whether you are a Christian that goes, you know what, Brad, this morning as you're talking, I really don't have that many doubts. I am confident in my salvation. I am confident in who Jesus says that I am, and I do not waver. Or whether you're a Christian this morning that says, I am prone to doubt. I am prone to wander, and it seems over and over and over again, this is a marker of my life. Will I ever have comfort? Will I ever have clarity? Will I ever find hope? I don't know, right? When we both, both of you, as you go and stand before God, your plea is the same, and that is, I am covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. He died for me, and it's enough. I need no other plea. I have to make no other argument. Jesus is enough. Amen. Now go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen.